Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, author and singer-songwriter, and for the past several years, I've been on a serious intellectual quest to understand how do ordinary people change the world through collective action. And speaking of that journey, many of you have gone on this journey with me through this show, through this podcast, and many of you are helping make the show happen uh, by being monthly supporters on Patreon. So thank you so much. Shout out to all of you. And if you want to be a part of that part of this journey in that way, you can also go to patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Um, the music you're hearing on the podcast is mine. <laughs> you can hear that anywhere music is streaming. And um, we're counting down to the release of my book in March. That's why we're launching this season three. So thanks to, thanks to you all for being here. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. Um, Eric Stoner is the editor at um, Waging Nonviolence. It is a blog about nonviolence online. Um, it's one of my favorite blogs personally. And many of you have read things from Waging Nonviolence because I send it out to you on my weekly email. Um, and Eric is also a friend, you know, like we, we met, uh, was it, I think two years ago in 2019, we, I had dinner with he and his, and his partner Jasmine and just kind of nerded out about nonviolent struggle and social change as one does. And so Eric is joining us today, uh, and we're going to chit chat about his work and nonviolent struggle. So thanks for joining us today, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Andre. Yeah. I mean, I'm super excited to have you. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, little do you know, I'm like, one of these days, I'm going to get my friend Eric onto my podcast. It's going to be awesome. So, um, Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work with Waging Nonviolence and what made you start the blog? Sure. Yeah. So I started Waging Nonviolence with a couple journalist friends of mine uh, about over 12 years ago now, which is hard for me to believe uh, that we've been doing this that long. But uh, we started it at a very different time, you know, when uh, we felt that, uh, you know, there wasn't really a lot of good media about social movements and nonviolence in particular. And, you know, there had been a couple historical kind of publications that had covered these topics, but they were put up by kind of older peace groups and they were print and they didn't really have a web presence and they came out every few months and we just mm. felt like you know this was a topic that deserved closer attention and more yeah. regular attention that you know we should be trying to cover as best as we could all the little twists and turns that movements are making kind of on a daily basis um, mm -hmm. if possible and we we had a few other kind of reasons why we we wanted to start it um, we felt like we wanted to kind of challenge the way that people understood what nonviolence means or what protest looks like, that most people, when they think of protest, just think of rallies or marches or people standing on street corners with signs. And yeah. they don't think about literally the hundreds or thousands of different tactics that you can use and how it can really kind of unleash, you know, uh, like creativity and, yeah. you know, how, you know, how activism and protest can kind of intersect with art and music and humor and theater mm -hmm. and, you know, all those kinds of, uh, you know, expressions of, of, of people. And that, uh, so we wanted to kind of highlight the kind of creative side of activism, um, 
and and show it's, it's kind of like limitless kind of possibilities. Um, we also wanted to kind of show we realized that there were these different approaches to nonviolence. You know, there are, there's, you know, it's talked about as kind of a principled approach, a more ethical, moral, faith-based approach to nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's more of a strategic uh, approach to nonviolence. And we had kind of a foot in both worlds. We had friends yeah. and colleagues that were kind of in those different camps. And we realized that Unfortunately, a lot of times they didn't really know each other and maybe they had misunderstandings about uh, each other and didn't. They had yeah. different heroes that they put on, put up on pedestals and kind of looked up to mm-hmm. and admired. And, and we just felt like there were such incredible people in both of those spaces and worlds that we wanted to try to, like, bring them together on on our platform and have them hopefully be more in conversation with each other so that we could work together and build, you know, stronger movements, you know? Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of pause here because I feel like, so you and I, like, I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about how many different tactics there are, like the difference between like protest and a movement or protest Mm -hmm. and all these other different tactics and different approaches to nonviolence. But this is something that I want so badly for people to hear and to know, you know, yeah. like, um, I remember when we first met and you were like, you just, you don't just always meet people every day who like really want to study these things and really look into them. And, um, so I, I just want to make sure that we don't pass by this for people. So could we talk a little bit just about like the first thing the the like tactics, right? Like, because right now, I think that when a lot of us, when we hear, okay, so we see something's wrong, the first thing we think is, all right, we got to do something. And so we go to the streets with our signs and things like that. And we kind of like march, chant, hold rallies. But these things aren't really that disruptive. And I think people get really disappointed, you know, after like you spend a whole summer <laughs> going to every protest that you hear of, you know? and Things haven't changed. You know, could you say a little bit about that? I think you're you're right. You know, I think um, a lot of times, especially for people that are new to this, they have a misperception you know, mm-hmm. about maybe how change happens or the timeline involved. Right. And mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, movements take time to kind of build and to create the pressure that kind of ends up eventually hopefully forcing the change that we're seeking right and and i don't know if there's probably ever been a case in history where you know a single action or even a series of actions kind of on their own have kind of accomplished their their goal especially if that's you know asking for more serious uh, types of change so i think we we need to have more realistic expectations right for how social change works and and kind of learn to be committed for for the long haul but i think you're you're right in in that you know tactics matter right and there are um you know literally hundreds of different documented types of 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 actions and some of them are more symbolic and can still be powerful um you know like the protests and marches and rallies like these are ways that we go out and voice our displeasure 
you know, yeah, which is good and it's helpful for us. If, if nothing else, it's cathartic for us. Yeah, and, <laughs> it, and it helps build community, which is really, really important. You know, like I think yeah. in terms of like people being committed to this work for for the long haul or for their, their their entire lives, you need to have like community and getting people out together in the streets. Like for yeah. me, is something that gives me energy and and kind of gives me life and and kind of the feeling that I want to continue in the in the work, um, but. You know, like you mentioned, uh, a lot of times those tactics are more prescribed, you know, like the, the state, you know, kind of allows them to happen. Right. And organizers, you know, kind of make plans to like get permits and to have, you know, the, the routes figured out in, in agreement with the police and all that kind of thing that like is kind of by design making them less disruptive right and and, right. and everyone goes home by the end of the day and you know back to normal the next day and i i think you know when you look at movements that have been successful historically like they take time but they also take like you know lots of different types of actions happening and yes. kind of and a coordination among the tactics so that they mm -hmm. they don't get stale and that they kind of escalate over time and kind of in like kind of like ramp up the pressure over time yeah. on the people in power so you know that means like really trying to do things that disrupt business as usual and like blocking streets and buildings and yep. striking and boycotts yes. and you know those types of tactics that like often will also affect the kind of bottom line right and like you know right. people in their pocketbooks you know those mm -hmm. those kinds of tactics are really powerful and often even in kind of revolutionary moments you know where you see governments come down um the kind of the the acts that precipitate that final kind of collapse are when there is a general strike or yeah. actions where like things just shut down and nothing is working as it should and then yeah. the people in power have to kind of step down so um but i think people like you know over the last 10 years we've had more protests than ever right it's been yeah. like this incredibly historic kind of moment that we're living in and i don't think i think a lot of people don't appreciate how unusual you know this time that we're living in is um but i think it's been dominated by large marches rallies protests and, yes. and less of the more disruptive tactics which i think is also where that kind of frustration comes in where people think we're doing this but it's not it's not working right. and, but they right. like, they're like but we told we told them we don't like what's going on. <laughs> millions, millions of us told them together <laughs> that we don't like this. And we told them every day last summer and they still didn't do differently. And I think that is the, what I hear in what you're saying is basically like, we don't really know how to escalate right now, you know, our nonviolent tactics. And when we talk about escalation, I even fear that when I say escalate, people automatically jump to weapons, right? It's like when we talk about escalating being disruptive, they're like, oh, so we need to break windows and burn things? And I'm like, no, not, like, not, not, not jumping from protests to property destruction, but just even understanding like 
why something like a worker strike or general strike is more powerful. That is an escalation from, you know, a rally, you know. I mean, even just in my own community organizing experience, which I is not extensive, you know, but in my own community organizing experience, even figuring out how to bridge the gap between theory and practice on this is has been challenging to say, okay, like we want to actually do some kind of action that will actually put pressure on power holders. But now thinking creatively about like what that action is, you know, even with, even with, you know, uh, for those of you listening, Gene Sharp has a list of 198 tactics um beautiful trouble has a list of tactics if y'all go to beautiful just google beautiful trouble and you'll find it y'all um there's so many you know uh you know lists of tactics and stories that you can read sometimes just getting out of the box of the symbolic um expressive mode of process has been a huge challenge like what what have you seen in that area as far as like breaking out of that or are there any stories that you know um, that you that you cherish that you hold that you're like, oh man, it's just such a just a great tactic that they that they pulled up? Or in the, are there any resources that you follow? Just what do you think of, uh, on on this in this realm? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I think um, there are a lot of movements that that do kind of experiment with those kinds of tactics, right? And I mean, you, you even saw that with a lot of the. Um, you know, movement for black lives, having, yeah. you know, taking over the highways and having die-ins, you know, at, at stores and kind of doing more disruptive types of actions. So it's not that it's not being tried, you know, um, you yeah. think of like Extinction Rebellion, for example, or, oh, yeah, I forgot you know, about them. You know really creative tactics, yeah. really disrupting, you know, life, especially in, in London and in the UK. But, you know, also in the U.S., you know, it's kind of Mm -hmm. uh, spread internationally um, around trying to get uh, governments to appreciate that we're in kind of a climate, you know, emergency here and they need to take drastic action. Obviously, because strikes are one of the most powerful tools, um, you do see that used more with campaigns that are obviously in the kind of labor movement. And I think it's a little Mm -hmm. harder to figure out maybe how that works for other types of struggles. But I think, you know, like um, a lot of really powerful strikes have happened that, that when they are planned and, and, (laughs) you know, and have the kind of buy-in that they need can often do kind of uh, win the, win the goods, you know, Um, you know, I was just from, just kind of reminded of, you know, thinking of all the protests that's happened over the last few years, one that, um, you know, kind of slips my mind often, but was incredibly, you know, striking and kind of powerful was actually that wave of of teacher uh, protests Mm. and strikes that happened just back in 2018, which was not that long ago, but Mm -hmm. I think most people don't think about that because we've been through so much, but and this, this was happening in red states, right? Like very conservative, yes. like starting in West Virginia, spreading to Oklahoma and then Arizona. Yeah. And you had tens of thousands of teachers going out on strike, shutting down the school systems. And in, in all of those cases, they won. They got, they increased their pay. They got more funding for the schools and for the students. And they didn't win everything, but they had major right. forward. 
And so, you know, I think when you start to really pay attention, you, you do see more disruptive action happening kind of all the time. Uh, but it's just not what I think first comes to mind for people when they think of, of, of protests. But I think we would do yeah. well to kind of uh, to, to pay more attention to that and study those types of actions and movements. And yeah. um, I know a movement that you that you've uh, care about and have have paid a lot of attention to is one that also is uh, one that I always turn to is a uh, you know the, the movement in Serbia. Um, yes, yes. I mean that's one that people in our world often talk about as like yeah. you know, because they just had so many things. They were really ahead of the curve, I think, in the way that they were thinking mm-hmm. about uh, how to build a mass movement. And yes, you know they they were really pretty ingenious in their kind of strategy and how they they also were able to manage this very repressive government right and respond to repression and to use you know really kind of ingenious and you know tactics that they were coming up with on the fly and a lot of humor and creativity and so i think a lot of people in our world point to, to that movement as one that is like um, had a lot of the elements that you need for like a really powerful uh, movement and operating in a really difficult situation, you know, against a, a brutal, you know, dictator who. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm inspired often by those stories of like movements that have uh, been able to mobilize and then also be effective even against kind of worst case scenarios. And um, in places where most people would imagine that nonviolence could never work. And, yes. and that happens time and time again. Mm-hmm. And um, I think those are the stories that I, I am often really inspired by. Like I teach a class on kind of civil resistance and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And one of the videos that I show my class is um, pray the devil back to hell. I don't know mm-hmm. if, you, if you've ever seen that, but no. It's one of the most powerful documentaries um, that I've ever seen. And it is about the struggle in Liberia against mm. Charles Taylor, this wow. kind of really ruthless dictator who, you know, it's just one of these stories where it's kind of like harder to imagine a more difficult um, circumstance mm-hmm. to organize in where, um, you know, you had child soldiers who were being kind of drugged, you know, up, you had blood diamonds, you had this ruthless dictator who was talking about wiping out the population and repopulating, like, I mean, just the most extreme, you know, uh, violence and and kind of situation that you can imagine. And it's a story about how women kind of really came together um, and, you know, both kind of through the churches and through the mosques and united and led this movement over the course of a a few years where they um, started off with kind of sit-ins and kind of ended up using all different kinds of tactics and kind of eventually being able to like break through this crazy you know situation and and bring down this dictator and Mm -hmm. and then elect the first female head of state on in africa you know and they just kind of stayed mobilized and committed to this struggle for years and had this yeah. really incredible victory. So um, those are the stories that I, I, I kind of, 
I, I turn to for, for inspiration. Yeah. As we're talking, I think it was because you were talking about how like there are these situations where people would assume nonviolence will never work, right? Like if the, if the regime has all the weapons and all the tanks and all the guns and all this kind of stuff, then you got to match that level of violence with, with them to be able to break off, you know, their, their oppression. But we see time and time again, you know, throughout history, like in all these different situations, people who literally can't, like they, they can't get access to that level of violence uh, that they can, they can fight against these regimes and win. And, and Serbia is a huge example of that. Well, that's what makes me think of misconceptions about nonviolence in general. All right, so you've got, you've got waging nonviolence. You do this all the time. You help people understand this. What are some, like maybe, I don't know, two or three, like the biggest misconceptions about nonviolence that you see that you wish that you could eliminate overnight? Like no one would ever say these things again. <laughs> you can wave a magic wand and no one will ever say these things about nonviolence ever again. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think some are, are pretty basic, like yeah. the presumption that a lot of people have that nonviolence is kind of equated with non-action, right? Or, yes. or passivity or kind of not standing up to injustice and, mm -hmm. and taking risks, you know, with your life or your body or, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I think, by, by definition, or at least the way that I understand it and why the way that people in our field talk about it is that it's exactly the opposite, right? That like nonviolence, you know, implies exactly, yeah, that taking action against injustice, right? And, mm -hmm. and that if you're not doing that, then that's not nonviolent action, nonviolent right. struggle. That's why it's often, you know, framed that way. So I think it's it's frustrating and sad that like after all these years, that's often one of the first things that people think of. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh God, like how yeah. do you how do how do we move beyond you know um, that kind of presumption? Uh, that's a big one. Like I really have been thinking about it. the way I've been thinking about that one is like I feel like once upon a time, the nonviolence part of nonviolent direct action needed the emphasis. You know, like. And I think that's what Dr. King was doing. Like when he was talking about nonviolence, he was like, he, he was really en emphasizing the nonviolent part. But I really feel like the direct action part needs the emphasis mm -hmm. now. Where like people are very familiar with some idea of nonviolence, but they're not connecting it to direct action. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think another another thing that comes to mind is something that you always hear, which relates to what we were talking about right before, but. This idea that nonviolence only works when you're facing a more civilized opponent, right? That if you're, mm -hmm. if the force that you're up against is ruthless and does not care at all about kind of its image or taking life, that that kind of undercuts the power of of nonviolence mm -hmm. or its potential to be effective, and. I, I was really just struck by this example. You, you, heard, you hear this, you've heard, you hear this all the time and kind of one of the things that often comes up is it's often said in reference to Gandhi, right? That, uh, yes. that the reason had he been facing Stalin or had he been facing Hitler, he would have been wiped out right away. 
And uh, you know, uh-huh. like, but the only reason that he was successful was because he was facing the British, who um, some people think are, <laughs> you know, more civilized, yeah. right? And because they didn't kill millions <laughs> of people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, and and I was really struck by this. Uh, I read this. I just finished this book about. Um, descent during World War One, and uh, part of the book uh, is called To End All Wars, and um, mm-hmm. part of the book le- was talking about the lead up to World War One, and kind of giving the snapshot of the British Empire, you know, in the decades right before war- World War One broke out, and it was talking about the introduction of the machine gun, you know, into, into war. And how the British unveiled the machine gun um, when they were trying to put down a revolt in Sudan, uh, I think in the 1890s. And um, it had never been used before. And they were facing, you know, this opposition that had, you know, weapons that weren't very sophisticated. And they just kind of mowed people down in this battle and killed 10,000 people. And they didn't, I think, I think they didn't lose a single person on their side, right? Just the idea that they could, you know, in one battle kill 10,000 people is just, to me, I was just like, you know, if I ever need to talk about the civil, how, how civilized the British were, you know, and how, you know, like it clearly, like they clearly had also no qualms with like, you know, yeah taking taking life right and just wiping people out so gandhi's success right in india really is not <laughs> there's there's no relation there right. to like the british being more peaceful or or more <laughs> civilized right like ten thousand people yeah. in one battle like i mean that's it was just like right yeah reading about that story i had never heard that before and i was just like wow that that is shocking, but also, I mean, in yeah. line with what empires do and what the, what the British were, yes. but like, I think a lot of people have a misconception about, about that, you know? And so, um, I wish that I could, I wish that people, yeah, could appreciate that, um, nonviolence, right. Isn't about, I heard, I know you've talked about this on previous episodes, but it isn't about necessarily winning over your opponent, right. It's not about like, yeah. in most cases it does happen, you know, um, but but that it it really is something that can work regardless of whether, you know, your opponent is kind of persuaded by your cause, right? That it's about um, a different understanding of how power works, right? That it's not, it doesn't emanate from the top, but, but from the bottom, you know, and uh, it's about people coming together and kind of withholding that their cooperation. And that when that happens on, in a, on a big enough scale, it can it can bring down governments. It can bring down, you know, um, forces that seem kind of unstoppable. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I also did my um, part of my thesis for my master's on um, nonviolence during World War II because um, I felt like mm-hmm. that was a topic that always comes up whenever you you bring you know you bring up uh, nonviolence. You know, well, what about Hitler? Mm-hmm. And when you actually yes. look into the history, you realize like there was nonviolent resistance in a lot of places around yep. occupied Europe. And at least, I mean, I feel like it was surprisingly effective 
in, in, in yes. most places where, um, you know, uh, cities, towns, sometimes whole countries were able to kind of mobilize without a lot of preparation yeah. often and to, to save sometimes basically their entire Jewish population from, from extermination. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was without kind of nonviolence yeah. training or understanding it was more spontaneous, which often doesn't really work. You know, most, most times you, you right. kind of need, need that preparation. So the fact that it was able to work in that kind of most extreme of situations without the background and training, and it's just kind of made me believe that if we were able to institutionalize this, yes. this knowledge more and, and this understanding, and if this could be built into our education, you know, from the time we were yes. in grade school, we were studying about movements and resistance and learning and yes. experimenting and doing role plays and all this kind of, if we could mm-hmm. build that into our culture more that like that, that would, you know, how much more powerful could we be? But there's obviously a reason why. Uh, of course. They don't want, they don't yeah, I, think about, I think about that all the time. What you're saying right now, it crosses my mind all the time. Like I have literally said, I wish that they would teach us this in grade school, you know, but there's a reason why they don't. And actually, as you were saying that, those were, there were two things that came to mind for me. It's like one, first off, we're not getting this information. And that's partly why I appreciate the work that Waging Nonviolence does so much is because I, the reason why you started it is still true today, where I feel like so much news about movements around the world is repressed, you know, so that we continue to like operate in this common sense misconceptions that we don't have the power to change the world in the way that we know that it needs to be changed. Because we assume that if we try to do anything, well, you know, they have all the guns and they have all the tanks and whatever whatever other, you know, technology of repression they have, and they're just going to squash us. So that's, that's one big thing is the information. And there was something else that I highlighted. Oh, the fact that, like, we are not necessarily, I say, I say people are that we're not outsmarted, we're being out organized all the time, but it's not just the outsmarted part. But it was the the point about organization, you know, that, because I think that a lot of people have this idea that maybe nonviolence worked at a certain time in history, but it won't work anymore, you know? And I feel like you just highlighted that, like, the idea of nonviolence was, like, new, <laughs> you know? Like, that you could, like, take on an empire without weapons together was like, I feel like Gandhi really made the case for that in his time, (laughs) right? Um, And they didn't have all the information that we have about how nonviolent struggle works now and how it can work. So how much more could it work if we mainstream this information, if ordinary people took it seriously, and uh, we supported local organizers and just understood that all of us millions of people have a role to play in these movements. You looking in the world World War II, I obviously I think both of we both like we love um, we or we hold uh, that the story of the Rosenstrasse protest, you know, as like one of those examples. That like, when I heard about the Rosenstrasse protest, which those of you who are listening, it's in the shortest version. <laughs> in in a couple seconds, I can tell you the story that this is a, this is a story about some ordinary women who faced off with Nazi forces who had taken their Jewish husbands 
and and won them back without weapons of their own. You know, when I first read that story, I I mean, my jaw hit the floor. I just couldn't believe that this story was there. And this is one of those stories that exists in that period. And we just don't know this stuff. It's just not taught to us. Yeah, it's really kept from mainstream history, you know, and I think that's a story where you feel like most people would feel like that would never or could never have happened, right? But I think what it shows is that even the Nazis, like one of the most ruthless, brutal forces in human history, right, uh, that they still had to play by certain rules, right? That like they couldn't... Like they're not exempt from the from the way that public opinion and power works, and they felt in that case that if they were to like kill these wives, these women who were out protesting, that it would damage their image, uh, and that they couldn't they couldn't bear that at that time, and that it was easier to give in to their demands and release their Jewish husbands, who you know were able to then survive often the war. And, you know, I think people often have this feeling that, you know, had it not been for the war, the Nazis would be, have taken over the entire world and they would be, you know, and it's just like, like, that's not how it, like, if people resist, like, they don't have power in in and of themselves to control the world. It, it It requires other people to cooperate, right? And sadly, they, they actually had, more cooperation than people want to acknowledge in the fact that yes. like anti-Semitism was, was widespread uh, around Europe, but also in the United States. And, you know, in some ways it still is right. And that like yes. oftentimes they were able to get people in these countries that they were occupying to do some of their bidding. Right. And to at least yes. go along or to not stand up and to not resist. And when people did care and did see the Jews in their community as their brothers and sisters and mm-hmm. and risk something to try to help them, they often were successful. But, it, yes. you know, and, but, you know, we don't want to the way that we tell history, we want to not complicate that narrative right about mm-hmm. like that that the war was necessary i mean it, it you know because yes. people have so much invested in that but then also they want to use yeah. that story and they do use that story to justify every war and every violent conflict since right and if yes. you can kind of poke holes in the idea that like that was necessary in the beginning then you know that damages their one of their cases that that every militarist holds up to kind of justify mm-hmm. every war going forward you know and and so yeah um yeah i think i think um that's why i think it's such an important story to kind of like really examine and try to like challenge that the traditional narrative around um you know i was gonna say it's a bit of a, it's a tangent but um you know when you're just talking about the lack of media you know, around mm-hmm. around these stories and movements i do think um from the time that we started waging nonviolence, you know, like 12 years ago, I think the media has improved um, to a degree um, in that, like, back when we started, there just wasn't a lot of coverage of 
of this right. stuff. Um, there also weren't as many movements, like big mass movements going on. But I feel like mm-hmm. it was something that the mainstream media ignored a lot more or, or looked yeah. down upon. And I think maybe because of the scale of it and mm-hmm. the kind of the fact that it was kind of becoming this ever present thing, um, it kind of forced mm-hmm. the media, like the media could no longer kind of ignore um, the protests. Right. And so they, they actually, I think, do a much better job of at least giving coverage to large you know, movements and protests. But where I think they, they, they still are lacking and where I think we try to, to fill, where we still have a role to play is that mm-hmm. I think the way that most media cover protests and movements is they're still most concerned with trying to look at the, the why and trying to answer the, the why. So like, why are people mm-hmm. out in the streets? What is the, what is the injustice that is, is causing this yeah. upheaval? And in, mm-hmm. totally valid and important, and we need to understand the injustices and the root causes of all this. Yeah. But what we try to focus on is the how, right? Like, like, yes. like how do people build power? What does it look like yes. at a very kind of like, granular level like how mm-hmm. you know how do movements work how do they affect change what are the strategy what is the plan what is you know like learning about all yeah. the inner workings that go into like good organizing and, and good movement building and you almost never see those types of details in mainstream coverage of movements and and so when we talk to organizers for our stories we're always asking the journalist to yeah. to kind of talk to them, to talk to the folks that are kind of in those roles inside these movements about like what is their strategic thinking? What is the plan? What yeah. is like what challenges yeah. do they face? How do they plan on trying to overcome them? Like what are like really getting yeah. into those kind of nitty-gritty details, which I think are more helpful for people to understand like what does this work really look like and what does good organizing look like right and and um, you're not going to get that from a lot of the mainstream coverage of of protests they often portray it as more um spontaneous you know that like Mm, it comes out of nowhere and it's just kind of like a miracle Mm. that all these people just showed up and you know and it's (laughs) like you know that's almost never the case right and it's like yeah and it's even less so for movements that actually have, you know, an impact and actually like achieve yes. their goals. You know, you, you might be able to get a lot of people on the street, but with a spontaneous kind of call to action. But that's not going to really lead where you want it to lead unless there's like a lot of thought and planning, you know, that kind of goes into that yeah. and training. So I think that's one thing that people really miss is that background. And that's what I really appreciate about about the work because it's, I, I feel like even like in the mainstream media, like sometimes these things are even not just uh, trying to uncover the why, but oftentimes I feel like the why is interrogated. Like, especially when it comes to like Black Lives Matter, you know, and like anti-racism protests, a lot of times I feel like the question that is being asked is, is this legitimate, mm-hmm. right? Are, are the grounds for this protest valid? Right. Um, and are the tactics that they're using 
justifiable, mm-hmm. right? And I do appreciate the question of how. And the question that comes up for me is because a lot of the people listening to this podcast are not may not consider themselves activists and may not consider themselves organizers. But like I'm, I'm here every other week giving you all information <laughs> about how how does nonviolent struggle work. And I, I've had to ask this question myself. I asked Serge this question when he was on the podcast too. Yeah. And I wonder what, what you might think about this. Like, why is it important for those of us who maybe don't consider ourselves organizers and activists to engage the how of nonviolent struggle? Why, why should we know how nonviolent struggle works? Well, I think, you know, if you care about justice uh, and you want to make the world a better place or you want to see the world, you know, you, you, you have a vision for what, what life should be like and that we're and appreciate that we're not there yet. Like, I think it's important for all of us to understand, like have some basic, like solid grounding and like, how, how does social change happen? Right. Like, like, even if you're not going to be on the front lines and risking arrest and risking your life for the struggle, like learning, about like how this has happened historically and like the best kind of lessons from that history. And once you have a a more well-rounded kind of understanding about this, then you can see different ways that you can plug in that aren't the the frontline kind of roles, you know, that are, that get all the attention, right? And you kind of appreciate that like, there are so many ways that you can be supportive of, of movements, even if you don't have the time to like come out for the action, you know, or to do something yeah. more dramatic. So, you know, you can even just like talking, you know, sharing uh, your perspective with friends and family that don't agree, you know, with, with the movement, right. Um, is really important, yeah. you know, like, and that's, and those are yeah. tough. I don't enjoy a lot mm-hmm. of times those conversations and I probably should do it more than I do, you know, but it's like unpleasant to yeah. get into conversations sometimes with folks that you have deep disagreements with. And, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that is ultimately how like people start to change their, their, their minds and thinking, you know, like, like it's not probably going to happen because they see a protest on TV, you know, that's probably only going to maybe you know, like harden folks in that camp, like in their beliefs, right? Like it ha- like change, yeah. at least at least on yeah. a personal level, change happens, I think, often through relationships, right? And through yeah. through lots of long, tough conversations. And I've had that with my conservative yeah. family and friends that I grew up with. And, you know, sometimes you lose those relationships in the process and you make, you make new yeah. ones. But like, I've also had friends that were, very conservative that have come around and are now very supportive of of me and my work and of kind of progressive movements more generally and 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 you know personally i i was very conservative like politically growing up because i mm-hmm. came from a pretty conservative community and family and church and i was just mm-hmm. never exposed to another way of looking at things and once I started to kind of hear these stories about nonviolence and about like what we, what the U S was doing around the world, like they over time, like had a real impact on me. And I, I kind of had a crisis of conscience and 
And I, I've obviously dramatically changed. And I, I kind of, so I think maybe I have a belief in, in the possibility of change more, yeah. more than a lot of my left kind of friends, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in part because I have experienced mm-hmm. it. I know that I, I was very different, you know, when I was in high school, <laughs> high school and college. And like, you know, I, I totally, I was on such a different trajectory and I totally mm. changed my life and dedicated it to this work. And, and I, wow. I feel like if I can do that, I, I know that other people can too. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't think that everyone can be saved, you know, or maybe, that, or, or maybe, maybe not that, but maybe just like the, the energy that it would take to, to yes. save everyone is not where we should best spend our, our, our time and energy. Right. But, um, right. but I do think, for example, like that's a low, a relatively low bar for, for people that don't really want to, um, get involved in, in protests or nonviolent action, right? Like just engaging with your community, engaging with people in your life that you care about that have problematic, <laughs> you know, opinions and views, right. And trying to start to shift that, the culture, um, you know, but, you know, also like movements need support, you know, you can, you can donate, you know, your, your, your yeah. time in some ways and, and money, you know, like we all need, yeah. we all need that support to kind of keep doing this work. I can't count how many movement groups I've gone to a meeting for or a training for, and they just don't have all the resources that would really help them to lead in the way that they want to. You know, you've already got people who are willing to invest all their time, their personal finances, you know, their personal money into like fixing something that's wrong in their community or fighting against police brutality or whatever. But, you know, like they may not even have like Crayola markers, you know, to to make, you know, some of the some of the materials that they want to make to train people want to come, you know, so like. Yeah. I think sometimes people hear like donating and think, oh, like that's not really doing anything. But if you find an org or organizers that are really serious about what they're doing, like they would welcome having, you know, ten, twenty five dollars from, you know, a hundred people totally. you know, every month. I mean, if you're yeah, I mean, if you're in a more privileged place where you have, you know, like a better income, but you don't really want to get your hands dirty like that's a way that's a way where where you yeah. can still like actually try to support folks that are doing that work um i mean i that shouldn't be everything obviously but that is one way that you can that you can help and i mean i think then there's also just all the behind the scenes stuff that you know isn't sexy and doesn't get headlines yeah. and won't, won't put you in the history books but like is like without you know without that movements don't work you know so you know like yes making food you know like at protests like feeding people like uh you know jail support if you don't want to get arrested you can like be the person that's like trying to help somebody keep tabs on them and try to get them out of jail you can most people aren't going to be on the front lines right but like i'm not normally on the front lines like i i found my role i i participate but i i don't think of myself as like uh as like an organizer right. on the, the front lines. And, uh, yeah. and I found like media as a way that I can contribute. I can help tell a story yes. and try to like spread the word. Right. So, you know, I think there's just kind of like endless ways that people can get involved, but you do need to have some basic 
grounding in this stuff to even understand what the what your options are and that's that's why i think it's important for everyone to kind of learn about this stuff so yeah that's super helpful eric i'm so 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 thankful that um the folks who follow me online get to kind of eavesdrop on one of our regular conversations (laughs) um thanks so much for being on the show everyone please do check out the work of waging Nonviolence. i this is this is a site that i follow i send y'all articles from it from time to time because it's it's one of the it's just one of those places that i know that i can get good coverage of social movements and stuff so eric thanks so much for your work and we hope to have you back on the show thanks so much i really appreciate it great to be with you Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get in more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheAndreHenry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.